0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is five books to the right of the book of Psalms, which is about in the middle of your Bibles. Our text this morning will be Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. In our series to date, several of our texts have had us above the clouds in the Bible mountain tops where you can see most of scripture's story and our text this morning is one of those points in the Bible from which you can see most of scripture's story Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen through 16 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Well, have you ever noticed that everyone seems to agree that it's a good thing to be a good person? Remember a quote from a movie I saw as a boy, it is better to be good than to not. Well, who could disagree with that? Yet there are many different ideas about what it means to be a good person, are there not? Certainly, the jihadist will have his idea of what it means to be a good person. Hippies have their idea. Texans have their idea. Cultural progressives and traditionalists have their own distinct ideas. And every cultural seems to have their own traditionalists or progressives. Depending on when you're living and where you're living, that will come. Each will come with its own set or its own answer to the question of what it means to be a good person. Yahoo Answers, I thought this would be a good place to go. Type the question into the search engine. Yahoo Answers comes up. Uh, What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a good life was the question. And the answer that I received, I was not expecting, but upon a little reflection occurred to me was exactly what I should have expected given our age of hedonism, narcissism, and moral relativism. What what does it mean to live a good life? Here's Here's the answer. For me, it's to do as many things as I can to try and enjoy what I have. I don't think you have to have lots of money to live a good life. You have to be positive and don't regret even the stupidest things you've done. Isn't that funny? That was the, that was the best answer. So on Yahoo Answers, right? people give their answers and then they vote. And this was the best answer. Voted for the most. There are others like it. Uh, not to live necessarily an innocent or unsinful life, but to live according to however the individual decides what makes him or her most content. Or this one. It means to fall in love. It means to try your hardest, and most importantly, to be happy. And here's one that fuses God into the answer, but is largely the same. To live like there's no tomorrow. Live for friends, family, yourself, and most importantly, God. And never say never, because anything is possible with the Lord. There's an answer for you. What's funny about these is that these people aren't even hearing the question the same way I'm asking it. They're hearing what does it mean to live a good life in terms of my experience of that life. My good experience. My good life, instead of a virtuous or an upright or an upstanding life, a, a different generation would have answered that question entirely differently, and I guess I'm somewhere in between. There were other answers that got closer to virtue a little farther down, to die at peace with how you've lived, uh, to live in a way that you can be proud of how you lived. One said never get caught, but it means to live a good, live a good life. So how do we account for the different answers out there? How do we account for the different answers? Well, serious differences in answer to the question of how to live a good life will come down to a difference in what we believe about God. If you believe the material world is all there is, you will answer the question differently than a person that believes there is a transcendent personal God. It comes down to our view of God. And the biblical word righteousness is largely out of use in our culture except for maybe in the church. But the idea that there is such a thing as a true right and good life is perfectly, perfectly contemporary. Even those who refuse the idea of transcendent morality have a sneaky morality of tolerance, do they not? Everyone wants to be a good person. Everyone wants to be righteous. Even the bad guys have their perceived good reasons in their own story to tell. I'm sure Goliath, who we heard about a few weeks ago, felt good about his life and had his reasons for the way he lived it. Now here's the question. How can we actually be righteous and how important is that really? How can we actually be righteous and how important is that really? Deep down, we all know this is the question. And deep down, we all hope that our answer is right. Deathbed conversations about how I live my life. What I'll say when I meet God. We're thinking about our maker in those moments. Everyone. Deep down, we know this is the question, and deep down, we hope we're right. Our text this morning comes from the book of Jeremiah Reading the book of Jeremiah is like watching a hurricane approach on the horizon, and Jeremiah is the weatherman describing in acute detail what is going to come of the city and what will become of the people in the city. We're all partying like there's nothing out of sorts, like the sky is not coming dark. Our specific text this morning from Jeremiah 33 is a flash of hope in the middle of an otherwise gloomy prediction. It's a news flash of hope of what lies on the other side of that storm. The storm is the storm of God's wrath against his covenant people Israel for their blatant sin against him, their covenant Lord Yahweh. Jeremiah is God's prophet to deliver his message, a weatherman has his instruments to predict the weather, and Jeremiah has the very words of God on his lips. A little more about Jeremiah and his job. Jeremiah is speaking to God's people on the brink of utter disaster. You remember, as Israel trusts in Yahweh, he preserves them, fights for them, and causes them to flourish. And as she forgets him and ignores him and rebels against him, the opposite is the case. This is what it means to be his people, to be holy as he's holy, to hear and to heed his voice and to flourish as a result. God promised to David a son to sit on his throne and rule forever. Solomon was looking pretty good after David, but the rest of the kings largely are a failure. And the history of Israel to date is mostly a train wreck. The kingdom was divided. Jeremiah is sent by Yahweh to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah and the process of decline for Israel is well underway in perfect accordance with what God would promise to happen for her disobedience. Jeremiah prophesies of the coming destruction of the land, Jerusalem, the temple, and the throne of David. God will remove all of the visible elements of Israel's life, and he will send her into exile. And he will do it by means of an enemy from the north, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. Jeremiah 5.15, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, it is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb, and they are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust, and they shall beat down with a sword." Jeremiah 6, 6-9, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Cut down her trees, cast up a siege, a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. The book of Jeremiah is cooked through with the heat of God's anger, and there are 52 chapters mostly like that. Reading it is somewhat dizzying. Martin Luther commented about the prophetic books in general. generally said, "...they have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at." He believed it was inspired by God, but that was his experience. Maybe that's your experience of reading some of these longer prophetic books. Where is this going? He's circling around. Well, Jeremiah and many of the prophets, this one is a compilation of highlight reel of speeches from Jeremiah's 40-year ministry interspersed with episodes from his life, from his call to his death, in roughly chronological order. But even if it would be hard to follow or could be, the impression it's designed to make would be inescapable, even if you were daydreaming while reading it. Jeremiah's two big points are clear. They're the, they're the two big points of any prophet. Israel has sinned against Yahweh, and Yahweh will judge Israel. They're common to all the prophets, and there is a third point common to all the prophets, which is in Jeremiah as well. A message of hope, bright, bright hope in the midst of judgment. And this third point doesn't get as much space or pen on the book, but it is no less noticeable, for it is a bright spot against a dark, dark backdrop. Jeremiah 1.9 nine. Jeremiah's call sounds like this, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, the Lord says. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overflow, to build and to plant. And our text this morning from Jeremiah 33 is a building and a planting passage. So back to righteousness, back to righteousness, what our text was about. That's what this bright spot in Jeremiah 33 is about. In Jeremiah's prophecy, it's about a future day when God's people are saved, when there's a righteous ruler on the throne, when he rules righteously in the land, and when God's people say of that place, the Lord is our righteousness. Well, this is the fifth in a six-part sermon series on God's covenant name, Yahweh, the name he comes to his people in saving love. In this name, Yahweh Tisdeknu, the Lord our Righteousness, is the one we're bumping up against today. God focused in various ways the meaning of his character and saving plans in a series of names. and this one, the Lord our Righteousness is one not to be missed. Well, there are four things, four things that Jeremiah tells us about righteousness that we'll have to get if we're going to praise God appropriately as the Lord our righteousness, which is his due. And the first is that righteousness is a problem. Righteousness is a problem. The stars are out during the day. Did you know that? The stars are out right now? Hard to see. Why? The sky is bright. So we are going to take a walk around in the darkness of the book of Jeremiah for a little while on this sermon until our eyes adjust to the darkness. And most of our time will be spent uh, on this first point. This first point will get the most time. So just a heads up. Righteousness is a problem. Early in chapter one we get a brief summary of the problem at hand and a summary of Jeremiah's ministry. Here it is, Jeremiah 116. What's the problem? I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Righteousness, we could say, is faithfulness to the Lord from the heart manifest in obedience. And unrighteousness, we could say, is forsakenness toward the Lord in the heart, manifest in disobedience. Jeremiah spares no imagery or angle in unpacking the situation in Israel. Words were his job, and he had plenty of them in good words for describing at least. And in Jeremiah's description of Israel's God-forsaken behavior, we see a description of humanity of which all of us are a part. So as we unpack now the causes for God's judgment, this is not merely a curious survey of biblical history. It is not merely context for our passage. It is an examination of the human condition in Adam and under sin. Israel is like we could think of a test case. What happens with a pocket of humanity when you give them uh, the best shot at being faithful to God? They have the power of God demonstrated in them, the word of God directly to them, and they have the promises of God. Will they obey? What we find out is that righteousness is a serious, serious problem for humanity. Israel was adulterous. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3 God defines his relationship with Israel in the category of marriage. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. This is the Exodus. God was loving and caring for his people who followed him, hardly perfectly, but followed him nonetheless. He was their loving and tender husband. And at Sinai, Israel was given a command perfectly natural and necessary to that kind of a covenant relationship. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Heard it before, it's the first commandment faithfulness should be the word to characterize both parties relationship here but for israel the word is forsakenness god forsakenness she has jeremiah 22 9 forsaken the covenant of the lord their god and worshiped other gods and served them and so we read in 220 and following the voice of god cheated a cheated husband speaking in graphic terms For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. That's the Exodus. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. How can you say, I am not unclean. I have not gone after bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? No one seek her need, weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and their prophets who say to a tree, you are my father and to a stone, you gave me birth for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in a time of their trouble, they say, arise, save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. This false worship was spiritual adultery. And it almost certainly came with it. Some obnoxious and abhorrent sexual worship. The Canaanite religion was obsessed with fertility And it involved the copulation of the gods and the copulation of worshipers with shrine prostitutes. False religion will always twist, abuse, and integrate sex into its system. And the Canaanites certainly did. So God continues in Jeremiah 3, You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravaged? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have a forehead of a whore and refuse to be ashamed. So she manipulates the gods with the Canaanites for the fertility of the land And God holds back the water and she holds her head high. Israel does. Spawning God. This isn't just moral failure. It was personal with God. Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband. So you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And so we read many graphic descriptions of God's judgment on Israel, his bride. And here's one that matches the language of adultery we've been looking at. Jeremiah 13, I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and your neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills of the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Israel has forsaken the living God for imaginary lovers. What else can we say but that Israel's sin was stupid? It was adulterous and it was stupid. In chapter two thirteen, memorize this one. God breaks it down very simply for us. My people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fount of living waters. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns were a pain. We don't have to deal with cisterns, but you wouldn't want to have to deal with cisterns. Holes in the ground or rock hewn out, uh, plaster coated on the inside with some kind of ancient, weak plaster. Nature, earthquakes weakening the shell, cracking so that the water leaked and wasn't any good. The cisterns they're making, pursuing, the false gods can't hold any water, and yet God, their God, is the fount of living waters. I had a friend recently who was uh, let go from his job. And he's, he's, he's a good friend. Um, there was one misunderstanding and then one uh, mess up. It wasn't, I think the boss is just done with him. Uh, but he was replaced by someone totally incompetent. I mean, totally incompetent, and uh, and he could pick this up. There's just no way the boss knew what he was doing. So whether he needed to go or not is one question, but um, the replacement was just kind of insulting. So whether the boss knew he was replacing with someone incompetent or not, um, the fact that it's a bad trade or a bad replacement doesn't, lighten it at all in fact it adds to it we discount God and mark up a rock the stupidity of the replacement the stupidity of the exchange doesn't lessen the sense of insult it seems to pile it on if you're a graphics designer at a firm and your boss says you're doing great work I'm gonna have to ask you to leave my third graders getting some compliments by his teacher his art teacher and he's really good at watercolors and we're going to give him A try the stupidity adds insult to imagery, insult to injury. Sorry, so Israel's sin was uh, adulterous. It was stupid, and it was persistent. Jeremiah is prophesying at the end of a long, long road that began with the Exodus at Sinai. In Jeremiah seven twenty five, we read that from the day your fathers came out from the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Israel's sin was persistent. Israel's sin was socially acidic. Our relationship with God will always manifest itself in our view of and our treatment of other human beings. It was certainly true here. Jeremiah five twenty eight. They have grown fat and sleek, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. A chapter later, in six thirteen, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy and un- for unjust gain, and from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And one chapter later, seven nine. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Sin always starts and is by nature uh, at heart an orientation to God, and it always manifests itself in the corrosion of human relationships. Social ills may have many superficial, even if real, uh, factors as explanations, and they can be addressed in a variety of ways. At a surface level. But at heart, all of the problems in our families, and our relationships, and in our society that have to deal with broken human relationships start with false worship in the heart. And it did for Israel. False gods don't care about people. And Israel's sin was socially acidic. And it was unrestrained. Unrestrained. Just listen to how unrestrained. Jeremiah 32, 35 they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin, burning their children as sacrifices so that the land might grow. It didn't even come into God's mind. It's not a statement about what does and doesn't come into God's mind. It's a statement about the utter incomprehensibility of Israel's actions. What, else can, what, what can they not do? The Canaanites would sacrifice their children to gods to manipulate the gods to do what they wanted. Archaeologists have found pits with thousands of charred remains of children from this kind of false worship. That God's people were participating in. And the Canaanites were not the last culture to leave the dead bodies of children in the wake of their pursuits. Israel, the people with God's very word, bought into this worldview. How much do you have to not believe God, a mother or a father, to take your child and drop them in a fire? How much do you have to not believe what God said? The sin is unrestrained. It is off the hook. They do not believe God's word. About four years ago, Christy and I had a couple over for dinner. Um, They shared a sad situation going on in her family. This gal's sister had a boy about a year old and had been mostly in the hospital with the child sick and not getting better, slowly deteriorating. Doctors couldn't figure out what the problem was, but they had a suspicion. This, to me, came out of left field. They installed a video camera in the hospital room, and when the nurses and the doctors were out, she would take feces from the diaper and insert it into the pick line of the child. No wonder he wasn't getting better. Why was she doing that? Because she was worshiping the attention and the affection and the pity as a mother whose child was sick. How did that come up in our family last night? As Christy and I were talking and remembering this. Oh, because we came across an article of a woman with a similar sin. False God. Uh, Long history of this. Coming out. Uh, claimed to be pregnant with twins and to uh, have stillbirths. Calls husband and family supposedly from the hospital with stillbirths. Turns out she bought urns even before that call. Was never pregnant. Whole funeral and everything for these children. What is going on there? Worshiping the pity that she would have and the attention. Even fed her boy with poison to make him throw up to convince the doctors that he really had a problem with his gallbladder, I think it was, so that they'd remove it. She's in jail now. She could almost kill her kid for the attention that she would get, worshiping the affection and attention of other people. Claimed her daughter had leukemia, little boxes all around town. She'd take her to imaginary appointments. Amazing. I hope that your stomach is turning when you hear this. That's what, that's what sin is. That's somewhere on a spectrum, right? That is off the charts. All of our sin is on that spectrum somewhere. It's of the same nature. If this lovelessness, this stomach turning at these stories is the case, how much more the abortion industry, which thrives in a marketplace that is our very own city, our very own city. Israel lived in a place Or these temptations and these gods are being worshipped as well. And she bowed down to them. And the Lord is on fire with anger over the burning of Israel's children. And her unbelief as she took after the surrounding culture. Her sin was unrestrained. And her sin was unblushing. Listen to this, Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they committed the abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Couldn't even blush spiritually numb she could burn her babies and feel safe in keeping the external trappings of her religion Jeremiah 7 4 God says do not trust these deceptive words this is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord as though by some superstitious belief some type of external religious practice could save her from her unrighteousness Jeremiah fourteen twelve, though they fast I will not hear their cry though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings I will not accept them she thinks the temple and these external behaviors can save her. Israel's sin was unblushing. And Israel's sin was hardened. Listen to this. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. So the leopard can't change his spots, therefore, well, if the leopard can change his spots, then you can do good who are accustomed to evil. Here's another verse. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved in the tablet of the heart. Engraved. Their lot is sin. It's baked through. They're hardened in it. Just think of some of these images that we've passed through in this little survey. Whoring. Broken cisterns. Stiffening their necks. They've grown fat and sleek while others suffer one hugger, eyes only for dis- dishonest gain, unblushing and unchanging as the leopard's spots. And there's one more in a familiar verse that sums it all up. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And doesn't that sound about right? The problem for Israel is a problem of unrighteousness in the heart. Righteousness is a problem for Israel, and righteousness is also a problem in the same way and to the same extent for you and for me. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All ungodliness, all unrighteousness. Scripture says that we know God from what he's made. His eternal attributes, divine power can be seen in the creation, and yet we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We prefer what we can make with our hands and do with our hands. Our jobs, our toys, our houses to the living God. We trust in them, sink our life into them. Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And from that exchange, the truth and the glory of God for a lie and created things follows all manner of sinful behavior. On the list in Romans 1 is unnatural sexual relations, uh, slander, gossip, haughtiness, covetousness, malice, even disobedience to parents. No, we think it's so common. It's kind of insane, isn't it? Disobedience to parents in most cases. That a child would hear the voice of her parents, and his parent would say one thing and then do the next. It's, 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 in, it's inborn. Israel's problem is our problem too. And Israel is just a sampling of humanity, remember. It's like a freshman with a tutor, with a tutor in every single subject. And yet, when the test comes... Uh, either doesn't show up or when he does he writes in the wrong answers just to spite those who are helping him. He should fail that test. And mom and dad should be furious even if their hearts are broken. And so the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. No one is righteous. No, not one. We are all without excuse in reading about Israel or reading about ourselves. We have a righteousness problem. But remember, our main text today is a bright spot in the book of Jeremiah. It's a very, very, very bright spot against the black sky of the book. First, righteousness is a problem. But second, number two, righteousness is a person. And this, my friends, is good news. Righteousness is a person. God's grace is greater than all of our sin, as the hymn writer writes. Let's read again the verses that opened our sermon. Happy Verses. They'll burn your eyes now that you've been looking at the dark so long, right? Eyes have adjusted. Jeremiah thirty-three, fourteen through 16. Behold, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, beyond the storm of my wrath, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And at that time, uh, and, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For now, the storm is here and God is devastating his people. But there is a time when a branch, a righteous branch will be raised up, a son of David who will execute justice and righteousness. It sounds like what Isaiah said a hundred years early. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. A Stumps good imagery, isn't it? As good as dead. But a shoot will spring up from the stump. There's hope. There's life. And God will cause it to grow. The Lord Yahweh has made sweeping and lavish promises to Israel. Think of, how, think of how this promise we've just read must sound like to the Israelite returning from exile who's hoping in the promises of God and looking for their fulfillment. God's promise that Abraham's descendants would fill the sky, would fill the earth like the stars fill the sky. And Moses would lead them into a promised land of milk and honey, paradise. That hasn't quite happened. That the son of David would lead his people, sit on an eternal throne, and everything would be right in the world. Well, God will do this, and through a faithful king, a king unlike any of their other leaders, their prophets who would prophesy for money, tell people what they needed to hear to make a buck, in the middle of their sins, say, everything's all right. In the name of Yahweh, everything is all right. They'd even plagiarize from each other, copying each other's prophecies. they run out of material. They're, they're, they're pathetic. The kings would build great and spacious houses, withholding the wages from those that they hired to build the homes. The shepherds did not care for the sheep, but scattered them. They did not feed them, but they ate the sheep. And so Yahweh says, Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, You have scattered my flock, and you have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. But I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Every man and woman in Israel was accountable to God on their own. But the Israelites' leaders had tremendous sway over the nation. In fact, it's more than just influence. Her leaders were like her lifeblood. Her prophets brought the word of God. Her priests represented God to them and dealt with sin. And her king represented God in leading the people. But this righteous branch of David, this, this, this shoot that will grow up from the stump, will execute perfect justice and righteousness he'll fulfill the king's description from deuteronomy 17 writing the scriptures down memorizing them knowing them and keeping them not turning from the right or the left so that israel as they trust in the king will flourish all the hopes that israel would have stocked up in the son of david remember our verse said god will fulfill his promise that he made to david that david would have a son to sit on a throne yes he'll do it through this heir, this righteous branch and ultimately, this son of David would crush the head of the serpent, a promise that goes all the way back to the beginning parts of the Bible for the perceptive reader. Israel is sick, not getting better, and the part pumps only death, but God will do something about it. He is a heart surgeon. And all of her hope is bound up in this one king who will come, who will be righteous. So there remains a question. Righteousness is a problem. Righteousness is a person, but how can that person, how can this king's righteousness be for us salvation, be for this unrighteous nation salvation? And this leads to our third point. Third point. Righteousness is a present. Righteousness is a present. Did you notice a curious word in the verse, in the name we're studying today? The word "hour." If it didn't stand out to you at the beginning, it really ought to stand out to you now. It ought to stand out to you now. The Bible's story and our salvation turns on this one word, our, in this name of God. If God is only righteousness, we're in big trouble. But if God is our righteousness, then there's hope. See, in salvation, in Jeremiah 33... The name is given, the Lord is our righteousness is given to the city. But in Jeremiah 23, almost the same passage is is given to us. But the name, the Lord is our righteousness is given to the son himself, the branch himself, to David. David gets the name, the Lord is our righteousness. His son will not only be a righteous branch, not only rule in righteousness, but will be to and for his people righteousness. And this, my friends, right here, this word our, God being righteousness for us, our righteousness through this branch, this is Christianity. This is the heart of Christianity, right here, beating right in front of you. Through David's son, God will do many things. Jeremiah 31 tells us, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant, put my law within them, write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They'll be my people. They'll all know me declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. God will do all of this, new hearts, the full forgiveness of sins. But one thing God must do if this unrighteous people is to stand before him is provide for them righteousness, which they don't have and he demands. The Lord is saying to us, humanity, through Christ, you have no righteousness, but I will provide a righteousness for you. And with that, please turn to Romans chapter 3. Please turn in your New Testaments to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read in a moment one of the most theologically significant and dense passages in the Bible. Just keep that in mind. It won't go down easy. But we're going to read it. It's a very important text. You'll want to highlight it in your Bibles. It's one of the best explanations, thorough explanations of what happened on the cross and how what Jesus did can make us saved. In Romans 1.18, it says the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In Romans 3, we're told that none is righteous, no, not one. And now let's read Romans 3.21-26. through 26. But now... whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, I said it'd be thick. Let me break it down. Let me break it down. God requires perfect righteousness. No one is righteous, all have sinned. Following me? God has made righteousness available to those who aren't righteous, who don't keep commands, who sin. And this was God's plan for righteousness from the beginning, and prophets like Jeremiah spoke about it. This righteousness is by grace as a gift, for how could it be otherwise? This righteousness is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This righteousness is available because of the wrath absorbing, bloodshedding death of Jesus. No other way. And this righteousness is received by means of faith, as Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this good news of righteousness displays God's righteousness, since God makes sinners righteous before Him by being righteousness for them Himself. In other words, in Christianity, righteousness is a present you see in Christianity we don't just need to be forgiven of our sins we also need to stand before God perfect with a perfect record we don't just need to be forgiven for pursuing false gods we need to have as a matter of our account and standing before God a perfect record of faithfulness to him Jesus was passively obedient for us in his suffering to the point of death but his whole life was a life of perfect obedience In the desert, the wilderness, tempted by Satan, quoting the scriptures, not sinning, being faithful to God. God calls him at his baptism his beloved son. Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. He was living a righteous life for us. God's love for you is displayed in Christ as he dies for you and suffers, but also in every step and every thought and every moment of Jesus' life where he lived righteously for you. You can stand before God in Christ and not only forgiven of your sins with a clean slate, but perfect righteousness. And this is why Christ came. Here it is in a verse. Romans 5 19. For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam's disobedience, Christ's obedience. Here again, 1 Corinthians 5.21. Listen for righteousness here. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Have you noticed this? 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We're we're cut from the same cloth as Israel and everything that we read in the Old Testament. And God, because of his magnificent love for us, because of his great grace, because of his mercy, gives us his righteousness. And this is why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. You don't get right with God by turning your life around, by getting forgiven and then trying to be righteous. Kevin DeYoung says it very well, your best is not good enough, my friends, you need grace. Every other system of goodness gives you a way to get more righteous, and hopefully you'll get righteous enough, here's the, here's the plan. In Christianity, God does it all for you, he gives you a new heart, and makes you a new person. Christianity admits that we are as bad as we really are, we're as unrighteous as we really are, and there is no hope in man, Period. But there is perfect hope, bright hope, because God is as gracious as he is and offers not only forgiveness but righteousness in Jesus. And so if you are not a Christian, if you are not a Christian this morning, you need the forgiveness of sins. You need your guilt removed. And you need the perfect righteousness of Christ. You cannot stand before God without these. And God offers them to you freely. You must, you must though, and this is... The hard part, but what is required to become a Christian and what God can make possible if he's at work in your heart. Say to God, I'm wrong and you're right. I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person. Say that to yourself. Pray that. I'm not a good person. There's no reason for you to accept me. That's what we're telling you. That's what the Bible is telling you to say. There's no reason for God to accept us except on the merits of Christ alone. His blood and his righteousness. Pray you'd do that. Whether you have committed an abortion, regardless of your sexual promiscuity, your hatred for and rebellion against your parents who may be dead and you can't reconcile with them, whatever's on the list in the Bible in terms of sin, Christ's blood and righteousness can cover it all. And it's offered to you freely because God loves you. And Christian, put no stock in your good works. Christ did not go to the cross and live a life for you of righteousness for nothing. You have none that would merit his favor. Listen now, Paul opens his book in Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, concerning his son, who is descended from David, through whom we have received grace. That is our life. Righteousness is a problem. Righteousness is a person. Righteousness is a present. Praise the Lord. And righteousness is also a place in jeremiah 23 the name the lord is our righteousness is given to david in 33 it's given to jerusalem in those days judah will be saved and jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called the lord is our righteousness listen to john's symbolic vision in revelation listen to this symbolic vision of the future age now, listen how god's people are described revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That is the fulfillment of all the expectations in the Old Testament right here. This is it. Righteousness is the place. The bride, the new Jerusalem coming down, a bride adorned for her husband, that's the people of God. It's a symbolic vision of the day when we are righteous before God and we're perfectly in his presence. Isn't that great? And no unrighteousness will be there at all. This is part of the encouragement in looking forward with hope in Christianity, looking forward to this future age, that God will one day judge all sin. I pray none of you are judged by God, but it will be a good thing when God judges sin. I pray you will trust him to do it in the cross for you, but it is right and it will be good one day when all sin is punished. Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, he says. Very last page of the Bible. Isn't Isn't that interesting? Cool story, huh? I am the root and the descendant of David. And the book almost ends. Jesus is coming. And he is coming in righteousness. And I pray that you will be found inside and not outside the gates. The key is to wash our robes of our life in the blood of Jesus so that they'll be clean. You cannot wash them yourself. Stains won't come out. You can't cover them. They can't be covered. And you can't ignore them. Wash your robes in the blood of Christ. And Christian, trust in the blood of Christ alone for your standing before God. No one wants to be caught outside these gates. Preach the gospel of Christ's blood and righteousness. Well, how can we actually be righteous and how important is it really? Oh, it is ultimately important. Nothing is more important than standing before God a good person. And how can you be righteous? Through the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess before you that we are not good people. We are not good people. And there is not a reason for you to accept any one of us into your presence except for the blood and righteousness of of our Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray that the forgiveness of sins would be a big deal to us. And I pray that the righteousness of Christ would be a big deal to us. And we would praise you, the Lord, our righteousness, as is your due. And wait, as the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.13, for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen.